Hello everybody, this is Twitchy Max and you're listening to season two of the family-friendly podcast Expired XP. This season we explore the world of gaming through insider interviews, new and retro game specials, and points of view on industry trends. If you like games, this podcast is for you. This week we are talking to Tara J. Brannigan. Tara is Director of Player Experience at Behaviour Games, managing gaming community support and influencers. She is an industry veteran who has a unique perspective on how gaming communities develop and has some good stories about John Romero. Towards the end of this episode, we explore some more adult themes, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Expired XP. I'm Peter, also known as Useless Viking, due to my uh, amazing performance when we play video games. And with me, as always... Twitchy Max, also based on your performance. Say hi. Hello. Now, look, we've got a special treat for everyone. Someone who I met uh, years ago, years ago, and who I had some extremely exciting conversations about our favorite games, the industry, and all kind of good times. Uh, I was also very lucky to have Tara as a speaker at an event I had called Digital Nations. Uh, Tara Brannigan, coming all the way from overseas. Do you mind introducing yourself, Tara, and, and, and telling us a little bit more about what you do? Uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, it has been a while. Thanks for reminding me how long it's been. So I, I'm Tara J. Brannigan. I'm the director of player experience over at Behavior Interactive. So um, what that means is that I oversee community management, player support, and influencer management for all of the titles that are made on the digital side of the business. So primarily Dead by Daylight. Yeah, it, it's really cool. I, I joined here in Montreal, Canada, uh, <laughs> Late January 2020, so I can't actually tell you that much about Montreal, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but we've all been work from home since about March, and it's been a really fun time to be a part of the company, as odd as that may sound. And you've got a bit of a journey, because obviously when I met you, we were in New Zealand. And then I know you were in Europe. So you've obviously uh, spanned the continents with your, your, your knowledge and experience. But, uh, and we're quite interested to hear more about how it all got started for you and kind of start telling us a little bit more about the story, how you got into video games. Cool. Um, so the very first game I ever played was actually Super Mario Brothers. Um, oh. My grandmother had picked up Super NES and... No, wait, that was an NES at that point. Um, and my aunt, who's more like a sister, she's seven years older than I, uh, she and I just like sat there and played it. And it was actually one of the first bugs that we ever found is that we've discovered that you could just um, manipulate a certain level to like continuously get lives. And once you got <laughs> past 99 lives, it actually went into letters. So we just kept doing it and we got to like ZZ. What we didn't realize is that if you went past that and got one more life, it went back to zero. And if you died, you were dead. Oh, um, no. <laughs> so we had spent like literally days accumulating these lives and then, you know, just immediately oh, died. No. Uh, so that was the first game I ever played. Um, <laughs> We primarily had consoles, so we had a Sega Genesis. I got really, really into Sonic the Hedgehog 2, and to oh, this day, yes. I, I can still speed run that game. <laughs> but the, the game that really did it for me, that like really started getting me interested, not just in like playing games, but this idea of like maybe I could do something with this, maybe I could work in games, was actually Doom. So I, I got the oh, Sharer wow. CD back in the day. Um, I don't think it was even a CD. I think it might have been a floppy disk. Uh, yeah, fair enough. But I, I just fell in love with it. And I, I still remember exactly where every single secret is for the first three levels of Doom. Past that, <laughs> it starts to get a little hazy, but uh, I 
played the heck out of it. And do you remember what it was I, that made you feel that way? It, it was it was the sense of 3D, like it was yeah. the sense of immersion. So the games I'd played prior to that, you were playing a character who was very clearly not human. It, it wasn't really you, like you. You were playing yeah. an avatar, and you know, yes, you're playing the Doom guy in Doom, mm. but it was this immersion of like, oh, but I'm the one that's doing this. I'm the one that's playing. And I'm the one with the chainsaw. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. getting the chainsaw was such a magical moment, too, because you're like, wait, what? Like, this is a thing that I can do. Yeah. Um, so that shift of the perspective and just, you know, I, I know by today's standards, the graphics are, you know, incredibly, incredibly outdated, but it just blew my mind. I was the, you know, 3D space and these, you know, otherworldly creatures, I, I really started to connect with like, there's, there's more that can be done here. Like, I, I want to be involved in this. So did I was you, super. Did, was Doom, was Doom a LAN game? Or am I making that up? Was that Doom yes. Yeah, it was LAN, yeah. It was yeah. LAN, right? Yeah. So did you play it like that as well? Did you play multiplayer with other people? Yeah. yeah. I, I hauled my, my mom was a, my mom is a 3D engineer working for automotive and aeronautics. So I like that worked really in my benefit in terms of becoming a gamer as well as like by the standards of that day, we had a really nice computer at home and I, I had this massive, massive 17 inch CRT that <laughs> I would haul to these land parties. And I was really small as a kid too. <laughs> so this funny. was, you know, <laughs> arms out hauling this gigantic thing around <laughs> How did that conversation go with your mom when you said, I want to take your expensive PC that you use for work to go and have a LAN party and play Doom and shoot demons? I will say, like, my mom has always been incredibly supportive. Like, I I was always, like, far too much of a serious kid and far too responsible. So the idea that I was going to break anything was not happening yeah. um but no she she never discouraged me playing games or being oh, interested in computers like i used to program in q basic i like made little trivia games that you know played music and computer beeps and that kind of stuff oh, that's um, so funny but yeah like the doom was the one i, I just yeah. you know i was like i need to learn more about this and i actually ended up you know i'm this nerdy kid from the midwest that has like zero social skills at that point in time. And I wrote a letter to John Romero and like an actual physical letter to John Romero saying like, I want to get into games someday. I want to work on video games. Do you have any advice? And he wrote me back. Like he wrote me back a letter and it was not a form letter. He took the time to address like specific things that, I had written um, very encouraging. Do you still I, you have know, it to this day? I do not, unfortunately. So my oh, yeah. proclivity for moving somewhere in the many moves, I have lost that. But I come to find out, like, he, he still does that today. How, how does that make you feel? So the, for those who don't know, John Romero, and I, if I get this wrong, please uh, kill me. But I think it's John Carmack. Those were the two. Uh, founders the at two Ed. johns yeah, yeah the two johns at ed right so so then we're talking about one of the creators of doom <laughs> writing a letter back to tara who'd written this letter to him so, so how did you how did you feel when you received it what was the experience of of even getting it did it just come in the mail like it just arrived it just it? came in the mail one day <laughs> and i i was confused too because i was like oh, who wrote me a letter and opened it up and i was just like 
I was shocked. And I had actually done this with authors before in the past, and I do actually still have one of those. Um, oh, wow. Because uh, I stuffed it in the book that was written by that person, and I, I moved the book along the way. Um, but yeah, I was just blown away by it. And, you know, as a kid, I, I think sometimes you just also don't understand that people have a very limited amount of time. So, like, as an adult, sure. it's actually more impressive in some ways to me that this person who, you know, was being, I, I'm sure he got hundreds of letters at that point, you know, it was booming, yeah. it was becoming such a big thing that he took the time to just address some random kid, you know, as a professional now, I'm like, man, I don't know that I can say that I would be that awesome to some kid that yeah. was writing in, like, to, to take all of your spare free time to do that is remarkable. Um, it gets, the story actually gets a little more interesting if you're okay with me continuing on oh, this topic. Absolutely. Yeah, um, so nerdy kid that I was, of course, like I, I get a response back from John Romero and like, you're now one of my heroes uh, kind of thing. Uh, he opened up forums years later and I hung out on the forums a lot. Uh, and I ended up becoming a moderator on his forums for a couple of years. And, you know, I, community management was not a thing that happened at that point in time. But, you know, I, I can say that like some of my skills as a community manager started back then on John Romero's forums. And I ended up getting into the game industry officially years after that. I was working at Xbox for a few years at that point. And uh, I'd unfortunately had a death in the family. And I just like, I, I couldn't really work for a little bit. Mm. So I went on a sabbatical. Xbox was extremely supportive of that. They had a sabbatical program. So I went down to San Francisco to learn how to make jewelry. And I swear this loops back. Give it just a second. Um, but I, I'm down in San Francisco and I realized that John Romero has a new company and it is based in San Francisco. So I sent him an email from my Microsoft address just to like prove that I am a professional in the industry and said like, hey, look, I don't know that you remember me. I got a job in the game industry. I've been working at Xbox. Uh, you wrote me a letter when I was a kid. I would love to be able to buy you coffee when I'm in town. Totally understand if that's not like something you're up for. So instead, he invites me to get pizza with his family. <laughs> I show up and his family's at a pizza place and we have pizza and we chat games and it's great. And then I, you know, he's everything's wrapping up and I'm like, all right, time to shuttle off and go back to jewelry. He's like, hey, do you do you like Miyazaki films? We're going to go see Spirited Away. And I'm like, there's a hidden camera somewhere, right? Somebody is trolling me. Um, but now he's, he's always been the super supportive figure. I, you know, between him and my mom, I had a lot of encouragement in getting into games. And, you know, I, I've always really, really appreciated that as, you know. It would be massive. Kind of the kickoff. Yeah, it, it was huge. But I remember when I arrived in New Zealand and the person, and I know you've worked for Weta, so you'll get this as well, but, uh, Tara, but I, I wrote a letter to Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh nice. saying, I don't know what you guys are doing in the future. Because by the time I arrived to New Zealand, they'd already done the first three movies. But I was like, but I am in marketing and stuff. I'm just keen to get into whatever you guys are doing. I'm willing to move to Wellington. And I wrote a big uh, form letter. And a guy that I would, 
than me kind of not years later, but who had kind of started and was working with him closely. So it wasn't Fran Walsh didn't write back, but Matt, who worked for Peter, wrote me a letter back. And it was again, handwritten. And he just said like, look, we're so, you know, it's so lovely having people like you who are so enthusiastic about what they do, blah, blah, blah. They really love it. You know, unfortunately there are no roles right now, but for, you know, Fran's really keen to hear from you in the future if anything comes up and stuff like that. And it's the only letter I've ever written like that, but it was very much like even just getting that for me. I'll, and I, I didn't keep that, but, but it was just like, <laughs> I just liked the concept of actually somebody read it and somebody took yeah. the time to write back. I mean, in your case, it's the, the actual guy and he invites <laughs> you for pizza and you go and watch a movie and he's like a legend. It's great, uh, isn't it? That someone like, like John must have seen a spark in you, Tara, that he kind of saw in himself or something and, yeah. and, and invested the time in you when he didn't need to. You know, um, it's, it's pretty great that, that people still do that in this day and age. It's, it does actually go even further than this, which yeah. is entertaining. Is Both he and Brenda are amazing people. And, um, you know, I went off to separate parts of the world. They moved off to uh, Ireland. My aunt had decided that she wanted to move abroad and she had decided that she wanted to move to Ireland. I, I love my aunt dearly, but I also know that she might get lost if she's in a strange new place. So I had reached out to the both of them and said like, hey, look, again, understand if this is not something you're willing to do, but my aunt's going to be in the country. Would it be okay if I gave her your Facebook profile in case she runs into trouble or she gets lost? Again, not expecting anything. And they, they friended my aunt. They invited her out to visit them and she got uh, Mexican food with John and Brenda and uh, my, my aunt, you know, works in the tech field, et cetera, but she's, she's not in game dev and she doesn't really understand who the both of them are in the context of the game dev world. No. And uh, so she's just posting photos of her trip in uh, Ireland and her friends are just like, are, is that John Romero? <laughs> she's like, <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, he's some like game dev person. I, Brenda's awesome. Like, uh, <laughs> they're both so funny. They're both very genuine, very down to earth, great people. And I, I've been very honored to be able to connect with them and, you know, have their support. Uh, so it, it's been really nice. I, I've really uh, appreciated it. It'd be an amazing feeling. I mean, you, you touched on, so you were saying like how you were at Xbox. So so how did that, how did you actually get into the industry in the beginning? How, how did you, was it from uni or university or, or how did how did that connection go into? Uh, so yeah, I, I don't really have much university. Um, I did some initial studies around 3D animation and 3D modeling. Uh, I was really into that for a little bit, but in discussing it with people who were in the field at that point in time, it was clear that the, the job that I had wanted was not really the reality of that role. So while I enjoyed it a lot, I, I didn't end up pursuing it in part because the, the place that I was studying replaced the teacher and the teacher was just like he would come in and put videotapes in and then disappear. That was it. Like, so, right. um, That's inspirational. Yeah. so I, I ended up doing some, uh, freelance web design for a little while, but I primarily did that from about 10 at night to three or four in the morning. Those were my like working hours. And, you know, it, it was freelancing. I got paid kind of irregularly and I just had this need for, you know, I probably need something steady. I could do something during the day. 
I ended up seeing a listing on Craigslist that sounded kind of fun. So I called it and it ended up being testing for what is now VMC Game Labs. At that point in time, it was just VMC. And it was Xbox testing. So I would go and, you know, depending on the type of test that day, I would do, you know, just basic testing, um, hardware testing. What's basic testing? I mean, uh, what what does any of this mean? Because I'm like listening to go, yep, yeah, hardware testing, basic testing. And I'm going, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm sure that there are better terms for it these days. Uh, This was was very much a, like, you show up at 8 a.m. and they might have work for you that day kind of thing. So for most of the test sessions, you would literally just, it was compatibility testing. It was making sure that for every new set of Xbox hardware, because, you know, there's one Xbox, but there's hundreds of different configurations configurations of RAM and chips and that sort of thing. So for every new batch of hardware, they would test every single existing Xbox game to make sure that this hardware configuration is going to work with all of the games that are already out there. There's not Mm. going to be a bunch of failures. So there was a lot of that. Uh, There was also literal hardware testing, which was just you're going to open and close the tray 200 times today. You're going to let it get to boot up and then you're going to do it again and again and again to see if it fails out. Those were... It, those were entertaining in a different way. Uh, I was actually a, I had been promoted to a lead at that point. So I, I had to tell other people to do this. Uh, and motivate them to do it. Yeah. Exactly. It's like grinding. Come on, you can do it. Yeah. You've got to kill a boar again and again and again and again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there was also more what I would, what I would consider more, you know, standard QA, which is testing out a game that hasn't been released yet. And, you know, identifying bugs, reproducing them, writing them up and, you know, sending them off to the the developers to be fixed and, and, you know, sometimes answering questions about it. I really loved QA. I'll I'll say that. Like, I I know that the industry tends to treat QA as this, you know, intro into the industry and a entry-level job that you're supposed to get out of at some point. But I think that does a real disservice to the industry and in that QA is a very specific skill set. And if somebody's really good at it, we should have the 10 to 15 year career path for people because it's an extremely valuable skill. It- I wish some companies took it more seriously. Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes Just or breaks say. the customer experience, right? So That's exactly it. I enjoyed that. I also was falling out of love of doing freelancing. I wanted to make more money, uh, but I couldn't do it at that particular shop at that point in time. So I left games for a little bit to go to a web company in Seattle. It was actually a high-end travel company that happened to have a web department and there were QA roles available. And somebody that I knew from the goth scene, I used to be very goth, uh, you know, recommended me for a role. I learned a lot about QA at that time, uh, better practices, processes. But in the back of my head the whole time, my brain was just like, but it's not games. Like you're bored out mm. of your mind. This is not like, mm. yes, it's interesting in a different way, but it, it's not games. It's not games. And one day a recruiter called me and it was actually for the the company I had worked for before. They, oh, okay. they had called me like every couple of weeks for ages. And I kept telling them like, look, I have a better job now. It pays more money. Unless you can pay me that money, I'm not coming back. So I had kind of stopped taking the calls when I saw that it was them. But one day I was just like, yeah, you know what? Pick it up. 
And it was the same spiel. And I was like, look, I, you know, I, I have this job now. I'm not interested in that. And the recruiter was quick on her feet. She's like, actually, if you have these other skills now, can you send through your CV? I think I actually have a much better role for you. Mm. And I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, and that ended up being a contract QA role with Xbox. Um, not nice. actually Xbox at that point. It was games for Windows Live. So Windows they Live, were yeah. porting... Halo 2 to Vista, uh, to Windows Vista. And Games for Windows Live was being developed at that point in time. They wanted to have QA folks like actually within the team because there were so many moving parts. And, you know, it was a really important part of the process to make sure that you had that really quick feedback with the QA folks. So I was brought in for that project and it was a great team, a really, really good team of people. We worked really tight knit. I did a lot of interesting types of testing. I had localization testing in there booting everything into Korean and Japanese and making sure it works there. German is the bane of localization because the words are all compounded. So that was always fun. But as part of, you know, that that was actually a fairly small team, smaller than I think people might think. Mm. And as part of that, I ended up helping out a lot when it came to project management roles. So doing stuff like Scrum and task tracking. Yeah, I had stepped into it just because somebody needed to do it. It seemed like something interesting to learn. And I was only a contract QA. My contract was starting to come up. And I was like, oh, you know, it's sad. I'm going to have to leave. And oh, this this project management role pops open and it's a full-time role. And I was kind of you know, coached by other folks in the industry at that point in time of like, look, you're never going to get a full-time job as QA. I know you love it, but if you want a full-time role at Microsoft at this point in time, go, go for that role. So I did, and I ended up getting it. And that team ended up transitioning to work on one versus 100 for Xbox live, which was a whole exciting experience all on its own. You know, I, it didn't make it, was it a to many places. Deal. <laughs> it really it was. Just, for folks who don't know, because it, it didn't make it to a lot of places in the world. No. One, one versus 100 for Xbox Live was a live game show experience. So you had to show up at a certain time during the week to play with tens of thousands of other people with a live host that's commented, like commentating throughout, competing for, you know, uh, Microsoft's... Uh, what even are they called now? I don't know what they like if they're called now Microsoft points, but but yeah, you you earned real prizes and that sort of thing. And it was a very different type of experience. And I, I don't think it has been matched yet, which you know, it's games as a service is a term now. It wasn't then. We had our yeah. own internal term because it it didn't exist, you know, outside of MMOs. It, it, it wasn't that sort of thing. So as part of that project, we'd identified that we couldn't just go with the traditional marketing approach, which was, you know, build a lot of hype just before launch. And then that's kind of it. It launches, there's hype around that, and then it goes away. For us, we needed people back every single week on Friday. The game lived or died by the fact that we needed all of these mm. people to be present. So I had identified that like, hey, I, I really think that this game needs to do more with like social media and community. Mm. And I, I had raised that to my manager a couple of times. I'm like, yeah, I just like, I, I don't think we can get away with just this, this traditional approach. And a while later he came back to me and said, you know, we talked about it and I think you're right. I, I think that this game does need community. And 
I, I think you need to be the one that runs it. And I very distinctly remember being like, ugh, don't make me deal with people. I don't want to deal with people. <laughs> and gamers in particular. And I just, because it like to give some perspective, my dream in the game industry was that I was going to be an art producer on a AAA title. That was my end goal. Like I, yeah. that is where I am headed. That is who I am going to be. And I, I was in a tools producer role at that point in time. The tools team was great. They just kind of ran themselves. I was most like, I'm sure I provided some value, but they kind of ran themselves. And hmm. so I had the most bandwidth on the team and I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. Um, uh, I'll do it, but I'm going right back to production after this. Like you're <laughs> not pushing me into something else. <laughs> and I fell in love with it. Like I hadn't understood what that role would be or what the potential in it was until I was in the middle of it. And I saw the, the connections to every part of the business and mm. this, this role where you're advocating not just for the player, but also for the developer and also for the people behind the scenes it allows you to have so much contact and so much, um, you know, integration with other parts of the business and other parts of the industry that you might not otherwise ever see. You know, as a tools producer, I was never talking to marketing. I was never talking to PR mm. and learning those skill sets and learning how, you know, the game industry really moves forward was just you know, mind blowing. Did you and, find that you had to break down internal silos? Because it's set from the way you're talking, yes. it sounds like you're bringing everyone together around the game and the joy of the game. Was it very much that? It was actually like, especially yeah. at that point in time, like community management, people had been doing it, but it wasn't considered a real career. And at that point in time, it wasn't a career at Xbox. There mm. was no job title internally that was community manager. It wasn't, mm. it wasn't a job track. So the whole time I was a community manager at Microsoft, I was actually a program manager. That's what behind the scenes it said. So at that point in time, things were just very much done by marketing. And as part of that, I, I had to have months of conversations like, look, this is what we need to do. This is why. It really helped me learn better persuasion skills too. And, you know, proving my case, proving why this is important. And, you know, we, we get this buy-off. Everybody wants the game to succeed. Everybody, you know, there's no antagonism between marketing and the, mm. the game team, but we're trying to find the thing that works. And basically we came to an agreement that for the entire first month, I would send them every single thing that I was going to post because I, I wasn't a trained PR professional. Like it's a, like True. I know that I was probably not that nice about it at the, like, I, I'm sure I was kind of like, why won't they just let me do it at that point in time in my early twenties. And now I think back, I was like, wow, they were putting a lot of trust in me. Yeah. <laughs> untrained person. Um, but they did like, they were really kind. They really like took the time to go over every single piece of content. And after about a month, they were like, look, we trust you. you you've clearly got a good head on your shoulders. Contact us if you're ever feeling, you know, iffy about something. If you need second eyes on things, we're here for you. We got your back. But, you know, you got this. Don't, you know, trust your instincts here. You're good. So that's like, that's the, the short. That's cool. Yeah, around to that. To the extent that like when one versus 100 went away, I ended up as an art producer on a AAA title. 
<laughs> and I had to do a long think about like, do I want this anymore? And I didn't. Like it wasn't. Oh. It, after, you know, after taking the role, you mean? So you, you took the role and then realized as you were doing it that it wasn't what you wanted to do? Well, kind of the way things worked at Xbox at that point in time was, you know, one versus 100 went away. Another yep. project could use my skills. They just kind of rolled me into it. I, okay. I didn't really like have five different projects to pick from. Yeah, but yeah. people knew that I had wanted to be an art producer and that this was a yeah. thing that I had as a, a career goal. So, you know, they, they did well by me by putting yeah. me on that team. But I, I do remember having a conversation shortly after uh, around like, I, I really think community management's important. Like, I think this is going <laughs> to change the industry. Like, I, I think that we should be investing more in this. And someone very distinctly told me, you need to cut it. And, Ooh. you know, they, they weren't, you know, it, it wasn't some big exec telling me this or anything. But no, no, no. Like, but yeah. It's like, Yeah. I think that's where we're at here right now. And mm. I think that's like, it's like, all right, well, I, I'm going to give this a go. Like this was a dream for a very long time. I'm going to see mm. if I can make this work. And it just, it wasn't for me. Like it, yeah. it, it, the would, dream would you know had what changed. What it was that, didn't, that, you, that you didn't like about it versus what you did like about, do you, do you know this? Like, are there any specific things in particular that you were like, this is why I didn't like it versus why this was so much better? I think it was just like, I, I'm a person who gets like stasis is the death of me. Like if I feel like I understand something in full and there's not a lot changing or, you know, new things to learn, I get bored and I bail out. Yeah. Um, production. I, I had been a program manager for five years at that point, And it's not to say there's not more to learn there, but I felt like I was in a situation where my role was primarily to tell people no. Like, I know you want that. It is cool. I see why you want it, but no, like we can't do it on mm. the, the time schedule. And community in part, some of the thing that appeals to me is like it changes every mm. every month. Like there could be a no, new social network tomorrow that means we have to change everything about our approach. So there's always something new and there's always something to learn. It's always something to, you know, grow from there. So uh, I ended up looking around a little bit. I saw one job listing that seemed kind of fun. <laughs> uh, it just seemed very community focused, applied to it, and it was PopCap Games. And at that point in time, they were so far ahead of the game in terms of community management. They had jumped on board with not just, you know, they, they changed a lot of things within the industry. You know, that was kind of the rise of what people call casual games. They're not yeah. casual. People spend thousands of hours in them and there's yeah. a lot of mastery. <laughs> I've done a lot of hours into Pants versus Zombies. Yes, I have that hours. game on like six different platforms. Yeah. <laughs> but they I were play the, the first person or is it third person version of that on the Xbox quite a lot as well. Oh the that, yeah. That they, yeah. Bran that they branched out into and I actually yeah. thought that was great. Yeah. Garden Warfare. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes, Garden Warfare. They were so far ahead in community at that point in time. Mm. And it was just such a it was such a fun role. It was really, really good. Time. So how did you go from there to landing in New Zealand? Interesting story that too. So we were at, um, my partner is a Kiwi. We'd been in Seattle for a very long time. And we were both kind of thinking like, hey, 
you know, would you be up for moving somewhere else? Yeah. So I had thrown my, my hat in the ring at PopCap because we did have studios elsewhere where, hey, look, if we need a community marketing manager in one of these other locations, please keep me under consideration. I, you know, we were interested in the idea of this. And uh, so there was a role at PopCap Dublin and I said, yes, awesome. Let's do this. And we started getting rid of our stuff, getting all prepped to move. And uh, I was kind of pulled into a broom cupboard situation and told cancel the move. Like I I just cancel the move, do it. It's like, all right, we'll do. Uh, Found another team within PopCap to join and started working on that project. Super cool little project, but not long after that, the PopCap Dublin office was shut down. So oh. we were in a situation where we had decided, like, look, we, we want to move. We've started making preparations for that. And then suddenly that opportunity just goes away. Mm. Everybody thinks that we moved to New Zealand because my partner is from New Zealand. But that's not actually the case. It's There's a company down in Wellington called Pickpock that was looking for someone. And I I had to have that conversation. like, hey, do you want to go back to New Zealand for a while? (laughs) Um, So we we went and, you know, it was a good time learning the Kiwi way. uh, Helped put certain things in perspective, too, where I thought it was just a my partner thing. I was like, no, this is this is a New Zealand thing. People are in a museum with no shoes on. <laughs> yeah, it's a very unique place. The work environment's very different as well. There's a lot of culture shock. I bet coming from the US, particularly as well, right? I bet there's a lot of culture shock coming to work in, in New Zealand. I, I kept telling, look, by American standards, I'm kind of a buzzkill. Like, I am not the world's most excitable. American. I'm pretty chill. But by comparison, I look like this obscene parody, like the American enthusiasm hands when I'm talking and, you know, being really excited for things. (laughs) I hadn't realized just how much of that was cultural until I, I moved to New Zealand. And you know, I, I do tell people because they always think that Germany was the harder move for me. Nah. That would be much harder yeah. culture wise. Yeah. But it's actually the cultures that on the surface look close that are more difficult because yeah, you're not true. expecting it. Like, yeah. yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. You're speaking the same language and for all intents and purposes, I guess consumption of entertainment and everything seems yeah. very similar. So you're like, this is going to be a breeze. And then you realize actually, I mean, I remember being, I remember coming from Sweden and being told by my boss on like day three, he pulled me over and goes, Pete, it's not, po- it's not, it's not okay to, if you sent an email to someone in the morning, you don't have to send them an email in the afternoon to ask them if they read your email. Cause I was like, why have they not responded? They've had an entire day to respond to my email. And he was like, you're pushing it a bit hard, mate. You can give them a week to respond and it's fine. I just hadn't even thought about it because Sweden, the Swedes are very efficient and it's all like, we don't use those, we don't use those comms as much, I think, as they do in other countries. So when we do, we're like, you should be responding to me, mate. So I had a problem with that cultural thing from that perspective with New Zealand where it was way more laid back and it was like, just just chill a bit with this overzealous (laughs) approach that you've got from Sweden, which is quite funny. I will say going from New Zealand to Germany was also entertaining, too, because I I had adapted. I had actually just signed my contract with Weta Workshop, which, you know, I I, 
Uber, I am a super nerd when it comes to practical effects. So I love what a workshop I had had a dream to work there forever. I literally used to own the domain name. I want to work for weta.com that had my CV. Um, I don't anymore. I remember how excited you were because we were talking at that time. We were more like uh, chatting about work situations. I can't remember what. And you were just like, oh, my God, this is happening. Yeah. So I like I had just signed a contract and I got a ping from a recruiter for a role in Germany. Germany. Why? And I remember telling my partner, like, yeah, I got this ping from a recruiter in Germany, I'm probably not going to respond. And, you know, I, they kind of got turned back around on me because I got the like, well, you always tell me that you should always just have the call with the recruiter. Like, all right, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll have a call with them. And this was not a, a fast thing by any, like, any measure. Uh, so I'd started working at Weta. Weta was always a short-term contract, so it was mm. never like I was hired there full-time. It was a, a contract role, uh, primarily working on a board game project, but also providing consultation around how they were doing community and social media. And I started talking to this company in Germany, and they just keep saying the right things, and I just keep getting further and further into the interview loop. So my, my contract is starting to get near the end of its contract, and the company in Germany wants to fly us out uh, for a couple of days to do an in-person interview. And we go out there, and it just it seemed like a magical place. We had both wanted to travel Europe, but as you know, from New Zealand, traveling anywhere is just prohibitively expensive. Yeah. And once you're in Europe, you're a hop from anything. You can get on a train and be in another country in an hour. So there were a lot of pluses to it. The company was a very magical place. Tons of people from different cultures, which was really fun. So ended up accepting that role, packing everything up again. <laughs> going off to Germany, uh, where we started to learn German. Unfortunately, it was a bit of a startup situation, so it didn't last particularly long, but I absolutely never regret that move. I, I loved Germany. I loved living there and you know, learning to speak the language as much as it is complicated. <laughs> it's tough, right? And a lot of people who haven't been in Germany, and I don't know, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but my one encounter with being in Germany, which was Hanover, by the way, which I cannot recommend to anyone, just saying is the fact that I didn't get that like everything on TV and everything at that stage, at least was in German. And yeah. so there was very little, like I remember watching the Akte X, which was the X files. And with my, even with my seven years of school German, and I feel like it was like three years repeated twice. And then an extra <laughs> bonus year of German that I'd done. I kind of figured out a little bit what was going on. I think it was mainly because I'd seen the episode before of the Akte X, but in English. <laughs> But yeah, was that your was that your experience too? Everything is in German in Germany, or yes. were, were they better? No, absolutely. So that like the companies will straight up lie to you about working in Germany. They're like, <laughs> oh, but everyone speaks English. It's fine. The reality is like a lot of Germans do speak English. Hmm. However, they do not want to speak English. Yeah, no, they don't. Stop. And, and that's fair enough, right? They want to, yeah. They're in their own country. They don't want to talk their own language. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was in Karlsruhe, which is uh, southwest Germany. It's near the border with France. It is a vastly different dialect from what they teach you. So Hochdeutsch hmm. is what they teach you, which is kind of the, the Hamburg style dialect, which is very, you know, kind of sharp well-defined sounds 
So you, that's what you learn when you're trying to learn German. All of the courses are geared towards that. But we're in Karlsruhe where they mumble and they slur things together and everything's a little sing-songy because it's really close to France. Yeah, and French, the French language is a mumble language, right? Yeah, yeah is it ever? Yeah. So, so uh, what's the, as somebody who's like worked in the industry for a long time now, what, what are the best parts and what do you reckon are the worst parts of working in the industry? It's a good question. Um, the best parts, I, I will say, it's still the people. Like you, yeah. I, I've worked in a couple different industries because every once in a while I like, I'm done with games. I'm done. This is it. I'm out. I always come back in a year or two. I always tell myself I'm done. And then like the, the people in the industry are some of the most passionate, creative, kind, welcoming folks. The flip side to that is the industry has been you know, it's a growing industry. It's still a fairly new industry. It's going through growing pains. Some of the not so great people can make your life hell. And uh, there's a certain level of professionalism that is sometimes lacking in games that comes from this, you know, this sense of like, oh, but we're all here to have fun. We work on games. And that, that tends to disproportionately impact marginalized folks within the industry because mm. they're the complainers because that racist joke turns out to be really racist and it's not okay for them. Mm. So I, but it, it, it I kind of take it back to community management though. It's like 99% of people are awesome. It's that 1% mm. that haven't been nipped in the bud that caused collateral damage. Mm. So, you know, industry is growing. It's got growing pains. Kind of worst parts of the industry are those growing pains. There's a lot of things that have needed to change. You know, crunch used to be just endemic to the in industry. You, you were just expected to put in extra hours, usually unpaid, but that's not okay anymore. And people have voice to that. And the industry has made it clear that, you know, well, if you are like that, you will lose your best employees. And with games being the big business it is now, employees have more power than they did back then, where, you know, used to be much more of a model of like, well, you should be happy you have a job. Yeah. And games are better if there isn't a crunch. Yeah. People make like when you're crunching, you're stressed out, you're sleep deprived, you're not at your best. You're expecting people to make critical decisions about something millions of people are going to play when they need to pass out. <laughs> it's yeah. not a good call for any life decision. Yeah. And I remember like just from some of the people that I've talked to and, you know, cause obviously I was lucky enough to have a few, you know, quite a few guys speaking at, at, at the event. And I, I, I do distinctly remember, but I can't remember who it was now, but at least one or two of the speakers who were on their way to come to New Zealand, were that was during crunch. And they just disappeared from the comms channel. Like we were like in contact quite a lot talking about it. And they were, you know, if it was prior or, or, or post, I can't remember. But then they were like, sorry, we're just heading into crunch now. And then they just disappeared. And then I remember them just popping up like five months later and going, how are you? And I was just like, whoa, what just happened? You just kind of disappeared into vacuum. I'm assuming that's kind of how it feels a bit when you're in that kind of crunch mode. Nothing else matters. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's also just out of out of whack with like it feeds the problem of ageism, because then anyone who has a family or has other priorities outside of working 60 hours a week 
is suddenly a liability to the project. And I will say like part of why I was so interested in the company that I'm currently at, Behavior, was that I have not seen for a very long time a company where you look at LinkedIn and there's just a stack of people who've been here like 10, 15 years. It's like, that's either a good sign or a bad sign. So I did a lot of digging for like, I will, anytime I apply at any company, I will go find people who left that company and ask them why. And I'm used to hearing a lot of like really awful, stuff. But with behavior, all I got was like, I really liked working there. I was there for a while. I'd go back. And uh, sometimes the project you work on is not the most exciting thing. I was like, I'm no longer 21 years old. I can deal with it not being the most exciting thing. (laughs) And I find Um, also what's really funny is what excites one person might not excite another one. I felt like that with industry. I was always an industry snob. I was very much like wanting to be in tech and stuff because I loved technology and thought it was cool. And now I work for a power company and I'm just like, that probably wasn't something I ever saw myself doing, but I love my project because the projects are super exciting. So I kind of, I just gravitate towards the things I love within it and I'm willing to forgive the for, kind of forgive the things that don't seem as cool to me anymore as they did when I was 20 and I just wanted the newest phone so that's why I wanted to be in tech. Exactly. Like I still don't like using Jira. I appreciate that <laughs> yeah. it is a good tool and yeah, it's I don't great. think anyone has ever enjoyed using Jira though. <laughs> no. Just... And I love it when they come out and they're like this is a new more user friendly version and you're like no it's not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just more complex. Yeah. Uh, so, so, what game are you playing right now, Tara? What's your What's your current? Are you playing anything right now? I am um, primarily Horizon Forbidden West. Uh, <laughs> it's so pretty. I'm one it's of the people so who good. somehow managed to get a PS5, and it looks so good. Oh, it's, it's stunning like, on the PS5. So yeah. good. I. I am eyeing Elden Ring. I can't decide if I will love or hate it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, you, we've just did a podcast uh, episode oh, yeah. about why it sucks so much. Uh, <laughs> Every, everyone says it's like 10 out of 10. And I've invested, oh, I don't know, 10 hours into it, something like that. And it's just, there's no narrative. There's no, you die all the time. It's too hard. There isn't really co-op. And me and Pete love co-op. Uh, it, yeah. there's, there's loads of reasons not to I think play it. it. I, think we, but I, I mean, I literally got a refund from Microsoft for it. That's how, how yeah. little I enjoyed it. Horizon Forbidden West is so absolutely weird. amazing. So that became my safe zone. After I'd played an hour of Elden Ring and I was really like, felt quite depressed and angry, I'd put on Forbidden West and then you just have this expansive, beautiful, vibrant yeah. environment that you can just breathe in and it just feels amazing. It's so um, gorgeous. Yeah, it is a great game. We'll have to we, we, we do it. We'll have to cover that off in some podcast uh, as well, Rich, at some stage. But yeah, I know you've Definitely. got a, a future about a question about the future, Rich. I could talk all day about the um, the community side of it actually, because there's a lot. You know, we there's a lot in the news about toxicity in games, and as a community, as someone who's deeply involved in the communities of the games of the organisations you work for, is there a lot out there? Do you interact with it a lot, and how how do you deal with it? It's a good question. And it kind of ties back to the thing that I said earlier, which is that I I will defend, like, despite having worked in community for like a decade now, I will defend to my dying breath that the vast majority of people who are playing games are good people. They are there to have fun. They're there to support each other. They are solid folks. The problem is that you have this sliver of a percent that causes these disruptive behaviors. And I I do like the, there has been a shift in the terminology. It was always 
toxic. It's always toxicity. <laughs> the, the terminology has changed a lot to disruptive because what's toxic to one person is not toxic to another person, but it might be really disruptive either okay, yeah. way um, to another person's experience. So, you know, and I, I've seen this in data. It's unfortunately data I can't really share, but, sure. you know, when looking at chat, when chat is seen as this super horrible thing and everybody's really awful in chat, it's a tiny sliver, but that tiny sliver impacts everyone else who sees it. So what is just one person suddenly impacts a much larger ecosystem than that. Every one of those people has a, a bad time. So I, I think this is one of those areas where the game industry is quickly learning that it does need to grow up, not just because it's, great for the players and, you know, for the experience that they're building, but you get into liability stuff very quickly. Mm. There are mm. issues of people using games, chat systems to uh, launder money or to do nefarious deeds. And there are companies that are extremely good about catching that in advance. And there are others who just don't do anything. So you know, I, I think it's it's going to be a rough ride for any company that is not looking in advance how they can mitigate these disruptive behaviors before they happen. Mm. You know, you shouldn't be looking at this as something that you handle through community management or through player support. It needs to be part of the development process to, uh, I'm, I, I always try to look at things from what tools are we giving to the worst person possible? And what is yeah. the harm that they can do with what we have given them? Yeah. That's a really and interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Have you seen Mythic Quest, Tara? I have, yes. I know that, the, is it TDP, which was time to penis or something? Like it was like, how long does it take before someone can use the tools? Oh, it's always, yes. To like to draw some, uh, something yeah. phallic. I don't know if that's an actual terminology within the industry. Oh, yeah. No, it is. Like, yeah. How long until somebody's going to do that? And it's just like, oh, it's like 25 seconds or something. We've already failed. Sometimes it takes longer and then everybody's really shocked or it's like, but How like the anticipation. But on the flip side, though, what are companies' responsibility? Because you know, talking about the gamers, and I think there is a responsibility for for us to be more empathetic as gamers. But to your point, the small percentage that might be to not toxic but like disruptive. Having said that, though, obviously there's a lot of responsibility on the companies here. Like, if we look at some recent examples with, uh, you know, I mean, CD Projekt uh, tend to come up as a, a red as tend to come up as an example of overselling something that was absolutely not even remotely there. And obviously the, a firestorm of uh, response to that. Um, like from the inside perspective in the gaming industry, because I think as gamers, Rich and I, as old angry men, complain sometimes <laughs> about the unreadiness of games as they're being delivered. And that that's driving a lot of this uh, disruptive behavior within gamers themselves, because they're tired of getting games that are just clearly not even half ready. How does that seem? It's definitely a complicated question. And I, I think everybody would answer it a little bit differently. But I, I think a, a common thing that most people would agree to is no one wants to ship a shitty game. No one. Like we all care about what we're shipping and we all want it to be good and we all want it to be fun. Sometimes there are pressures that just are either outside of the control or, you yeah. know, and it, it, there's also this, this damned if you do, damned if you don't sometimes in that 
you are like the reality of the situation these days is you are getting death threats either way. You are getting death threats if you delay the game. You are getting death threats if you don't delay the game and it's buggy. Mm. And there's, you know, there are definitely times to be frustrated and upset because uh, a product doesn't meet your expectations. But it's it's never acceptable to issue death threats. So there's one one last question for you, Tara, which is mm-hmm. uh, which we ask everyone, which is. Where do you see the innovation and, and where do you think games are going in the future from, from your perspective in the industry? That's a good question. <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a tough one. <laughs> it is a tough one. And, you know, I, I know it's kind of a non-answer, but honestly, like whatever I predict is probably not going to be the reality. And mm-hmm. that's been what do you, what, some what of you the fun. Want, well, off of that, like, I love consoles. Like I play a lot of PC too, but honestly, like at the end of the day, I've been on PC all day long. I usually want to go sit on the couch. So I play a lot of console games. I think the actual physical console is going to become less important over time. I think you're probably going to start to see either devices or more leniency between consoles of sharing games as services, you see things like Game Pass that we are doing Game very Pass. well. Yeah, everyone. We, I mean, we've got we've got PlayStation and Xbox, but I mean, Game Game Pass is just insane, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. Exactly, yeah. and you know, uh, it's proven to be a successful model. I, I don't know that the console itself is the big important piece anymore. I, I don't think. I don't think Xbox cares that much if it's on a physical Xbox or if it's Xbox on Windows or Xbox on whatever. As long as people are, you know, playing those games, paying for that subscription, you know, it's similar to how entertainment has changed in terms of TV. Everybody used to have cable. Everybody used to either have Comcast or X or Y or Z. And now it's, you know... a choose your pick on streaming providers, they all go into the same TV. It's not so much the the conflict that it used to be. But, you know, as I said, whatever I predict is probably not going to be even half of it. And that's part of why I've stuck with games too. As I said before, I'm not a person that deals well with stasis and the game industry is a great place to be if you always need things to be changing and always need to be learning new things because, you know, the game industry now is going to be vastly different in five years because the game industry that exists right this moment is vastly different than it was five years ago and five years before that. You look at the leaps that we've made from the time when you know I, I was a dorky little kid in the Midwest with her little shareware copy of Doom to you know Horizon, where you can see individual hair follicles. You know, and that, that's not to say graphics are the the innovation here. I think who would have thought that it takes two was going to be. You yeah. know, it comes at a time where multiplayer games, MMOs, all this stuff is like every game is trying to monetize and all this stuff. And along comes this game called It Takes Two, and it just blows out all the game awards as the best game. It becomes, it's my most loved couch cope. Steph and I are playing it now for the second time, right? Nice. And and it's amazing having a game that can come, and to your point about something will come out of nowhere that no one expected that goes in a completely different direction. And I'm sure there, there would be a lot of companies looking at that, taking note, going, that worked insanely well for them. What could we do? what would be the next thing that would be cool and could have that kind of impact. So it is, it is, feels like it's always changing. It really does. 
And I, I think that's also part of it is that the accessibility of games has changed a lot too, you know, from when I was a kid and I was one of the only ones that had this really nice PC with its, you know, two megabytes of RAM. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was one of the only kids that had yeah. PC computing around me at that point in time. Uh, that's not the case anymore. You know, even our phones have more computing po- potential than the consoles we had as mm-hmm. kids. And as part of that, there are new audiences. There are mm-hmm. specific niches and interests that haven't been explored by games. You know, we're mm-hmm. always going to have generic brown gruff shooter. Uh, that's always mm-hmm. going to have a place and it's always going to have a market. But things like lock picking simulator, they have an audience and it's a really excited audience. You know, mm-hmm. you know, the camshaft guys in uh, New Zealand, they found a very specific audience that not only wants to build cars, they want to build a car plant. And that's the game. They know that it's not for everyone, but Mm -hmm. for the people that it is for, it is the one game. It is the Mm -hmm. game. And they have, you know, a very loyal fan base as a result. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. We're going to see a Mm -hmm. lot of stuff that, you know, true gamers are going to be irritated about because that's not a real game. And that's been happening since Mo. Like, I remember when, you know, browser games were like, those aren't real games. Mm. Okay, fine, they're games. Mobile games, like, ah, it's not real games. It's just cheap toys on your phone. Everybody plays mobile games now. Like, the the broadening of the market has really Mm. opened up opportunities for people to, you know, unpacking is another good example. Who Mm. thought that a game about unpacking boxes during a move was going to steal that much attention and be that great of a little narrative experience that Mm. people are, you know, super excited about it. And yeah, Mm. it's not for everybody, but for the people it was for, it was a smashing success. Yeah. And it's getting easier to make these games as well. So when you think you've got all these niches that are untapped and it's easier to make the games, you put them together, it's just going to explode the amount of games out there. It's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. great. It's so yeah, it's exciting. Cool. cool. All right. Well, let's let's wrap up there. I mean, I could talk to you all day, Tara, about your <laughs> your role and your experience. I find it really fascinating. Um, so thanks ever so much for coming on. And uh, good luck with Horizon Zero Dawn. If I could get a, a refund. Forbidden for, West. Forbidden uh, West. Sorry. Forbidden Horizon West. Forbidden West. Horizon Forbidden West. <laughs> um, if I could get a refund for Elden Ring, that's exactly what I would buy. It's really good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cool. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. Next time, we cover off Nintendo's latest Kirby game and revisit the PlayStation 2 classic Harry Potter. If you have any suggestions or comments on any of our pods, you can contact us at expiredxp on Instagram. See you next time.